We're going through the book of Ephesians. We've entitled this series, True Church, the Story of God and the Lives of His People. And as we begin, I'd like to ask you this question, what is the gospel? If you were to just write down a quick definition of the gospel, what would you actually put down? Or if someone asked you, like, I hear about this gospel, what is it? What would you say? You might find that it's a little harder to answer than one might imagine. And I want you to know, getting the gospel right is of critical importance. An author by the name of Bill Hall in his book, Conversion and Discipleship, he made this statement, the gospel that we preach determines the disciples that we make. Think about that. The gospel that we preach determines the disciples that we make. And in his book, he actually outlines the six different gospels that are preached in the world today. And I'd like to give them to you and give you just a brief description that I've written up on each one. The first gospel is the left gospel. This is the gospel of help the needy. This is the gospel that is most predominantly taught in liberal churches. It is a gospel that accommodates and adapts to the prevalent values of current culture. This gospel emphasizes care for the disadvantaged and needy, social justice, and views truth as either optional or unknowable. It emphasizes embracing the values of the culture as a way of loving one's neighbor. And certainly loving one's neighbor is of great importance. Let me give you another. The prosperity gospel. This is a claim your rights gospel. This gospel emphasizes an entitlement culture where the believer claims his or her rights and manages God through good behavior and positive statements to bring about outcomes they desire. This view replaces the sovereign God with one who becomes a means to fulfill one's worldly desires. Then he gives this gospel, the consumer gospel. This is meet your needs. This view of the gospel is oriented around the perceived desires and needs of the individual and to meet those needs and wants in an easy to access, engaging and entertaining manner. For the busy person who values almost instantaneous results and an image of success, this gospel replaces the slow and challenging path of spiritual growth and maturity with convenience, speed, cultural relevance, and soundbite theology. Methods, messages, and programs advertise fast, easy results that create consumers that look for churches that quote-unquote meet their needs and are driven by a culture of self-indulgence, of personal desires in pursuit of relevance. Sound familiar? Huge thrust in Christianity today. Then another gospel. This is the right gospel or the religious right gospel. This is right makes might. This gospel tends to emphasize the intellectual pursuit and possession of correct doctrine that equates biblical knowledge with spiritual maturity. It creates a culture of theological swagger that tends to produce disciples who are separated from the people they're trying to reach. Being right is seen as being powerful. Humility, love, and concern for those apart from Christ can become secondary to the primary suit of being right. And then there is this gospel, the forgiveness-only gospel. This is the gospel of just be forgiven. This presentation of the gospel emphasizes 
forgiveness by professing that one believes in Jesus, but makes following him as a way of life optional. The idea is simply believe in Jesus and know that you are safe from your sins, live as you see best, and wait for heaven. This gospel sanctions spiritual passivity in which pursuing devotion and discipleship as a follower of Christ is viewed as optional. Holiness and spiritual maturity, although valued, are not emphasized. And there is much to extol about the forgiveness-only gospel, but is that the gospel that is presented in the Scriptures? And the final gospel that he presents is the kingdom gospel. It is follow me. The gospel of the kingdom emphasizes salvation from sin by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, that results in following Jesus as Lord as a way of life. This union with Jesus Christ brings about a transformation in all aspects of life as his disciple. The kingdom gospel focuses on the eternal rule and reign of Jesus in all areas of a disciple's life as the believer lives out the life he or she has in Christ. The gospel of the kingdom directly ties justification and sanctification. A saving relationship with Christ leads to following, serving, and learning from him in community with other believers for a lifetime. This gospel focuses on people beginning to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and matures as disciples who make disciples. It is forgiveness by faith and following Jesus as a way of life. And I'd like to show you from the scriptures that, (coughs) excuse me, the gospel that is presented in the scriptures is the gospel of the kingdom. This is what Paul presented. Do you remember where uh, Paul actually spoke and gave a, an address to the elders from Ephesus, the very same elders that this letter that we're reading uh, was addressed to? And in Acts chapter 20, you find him making this state, these statements. He said in Acts 20, 24 through 25, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, listen to this, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Okay? And then his next sentence is this, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. You see that? The gospel of grace and preaching the kingdom, because the two are directly tied together. Or like Paul said in, a, in the book of Colossians, in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're taken out of the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son, whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what is the gospel of the kingdom? Well, if you've got your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, you have this absolutely classic explanation of the kingdom gospel. And some of these verses are going to be really familiar to you, but I want you to see them in the context in which they're found. So the first thing we need to know that through the gospel of the kingdom, God saves us by grace through faith in Christ. So let's take a look. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. He says, salvation 
is all of grace. The word means unmerited favor. The ancient Greeks would use this word for someone who had great strength, who would come alongside and rescue or help someone in in great danger or had significant need. It was grace, unearned, unmerited favor. And this is, uh, just like you see in verse 8, is just a capture of that parenthetical phrase that was made in chapter 2, verse 5, where he said, by grace you have been saved through faith. And God doesn't just really, just merely rescue people from the penalty of their sins just so that they can be forgiven. Actually, he does so that they will spend an eternity celebrating and praising God for his amazing unmerited grace. It happens in this life, but it'll be the continual theme of heaven, celebrating a fact that God is so gracious and so immensely loving and compassionate that it'll evoke and uh, worship among his people for an eternal lifetime. And when you look at all the religions of the world, you're like, well, how do you know actually which one is the right one? Let me tell you the one that's the actual true religion And that is the one that does what only God can do and is absolutely unique. All the religions of the world have some sort of work, merit, things that you do to somehow earn God's favor or a position in heaven with the exception of the one true faith in which God is a God of grace and compassion and he accomplishes salvation uh, completely apart anything anyone might do. So when you look at, for instance, the Buddhists, and they have an eightfold path, or the Hindus with their, their doctrine of karma, you didn't get it right in this life, you're going to come back, and it's, and it's just this ongoing cycle, or the Jewish covenant, or the Muslims with their code of law. But the one true faith is that God has demonstrated complete compassion and utmost grace by doing what we could never do in sending his son. And so we are saved by grace, but the means by which we receive this grace is what? Take a look at the text. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That word means to trust, to rely upon, to have dependence upon. We are saved by grace through faith. And some people say, well, you know what? I'm just not a person of faith, right? I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Every single person is a person of faith. You and I demonstrate faith on an hourly basis. So for instance, if you drove here to church, you got into that car and you got onto that highway, I want you to know you are exercising a tremendous amount of faith, right? You are having faith in your vehicle, right? Faith that people are going to generally follow the rules of the road, right? These are, these are all just signs of faith. Faith that when you hit the brake pedal, that the brake was actually going to work, right? But you demonstrate faith when you get into a plane. Now, I know that like some of our our physicists among us can explain like, well, there is a reason why this massive hunk of metal can actually fly and be suspended in the air. There's some physics that can explain that. But take a minute and just think about how much that plane weighs and how high you're in the air. I want you to know that if you step foot on a plane, you have got a tremendous amount of faith in a pilot that you don't even know, Right? Or a plane that you've not even inspected, but you just got on this hunk of steel and somehow it's going to get me where I need to be, right? You you drive across a bridge, and yes, we have very good engineers, but I want you to know that you're putting your faith that they actually worked this out, and that bridge 
is going to hold you up. You ever been to a restaurant and ordered food? Anybody ever done that? Did anybody ever go back? Like, hey, just want to see who's making the food and what you're doing? You're like, uh-uh, no way. You're, you're not, I'm, I'm not eating. No, you just like, sure, I'll have that, you know? And, and you take it by faith. You don't do litmus tests on your food, what's in the drink. No, you just, you just eat, right? Friends, you and I demonstrate faith all the time. When it comes to relationship with God and salvation, you're demonstrating faith. What is, what are you trusting in or who are you trusting in? So many people are like, well, I'm going to trust in the fact that uh, I'm, I'm keeping the Ten Commandments. Really? Which ones? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, in fact, many people that say that actually don't even know many of the Ten Commandments. Or I'm, I'm living a moral life. Or I have, I've, I've been a part of a church. I want you to know, uh, I was baptized as a baby. I went through a, a communion, uh, as a first communion. I got a picture with me and a cake. I did a confirmation. I've, I've done all those things. I am trusting in these works to make it right with God. I've done what I was asked to do. What does the scripture say? Not does what a church say or what, what you might think. What does the scripture say? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the what? It's the gift. It's the gift of God. You didn't earn it. This wasn't like, well, you do this for me. I'm going to give you this. Uh-uh. It was a free gift. And notice what he said in verse 9. Not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. It's not on anything you've done. You didn't earn salvation. You can't keep it. You can't lose it, even by your bad works and the bad things you've done. You know why? Because salvation is all of grace. God did it all. And when you and I, who are truly trusting in Christ, are in heaven, you know we're all going to have the exact same story. I absolutely do not need to deserve to be here. You know what? It's only by the grace of God. It wasn't that I was really smart, did all these wonderful things. Uh-uh. It was, I'm here by virtue of the grace of God. So who does the saving? Who does it? Well, take a look. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. The person that saves us is the one that is exalted in this letter. We are saved by Christ, who is the sovereign and supreme king of the universe, and he is now seated in his throne, exercising dominion, sovereignty, and power. So, like, just take a look, just as a way of review of just some of the things that we've seen as we've gone through the book of Ephesians. Like, chapter 1, verse 7. Look at the kingdom language. Verse 7, chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He's done it. Verse 10. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Wow. Wow. Total dominion. Things in the heaven, things on the earth. Who's in charge? Christ. Look at verse 20. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. This is Christ, 
the supreme sovereign ruler. He's the one who does the saving, just like you see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead, spiritually dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And notice this, verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So who does the saving? Christ, the supreme sovereign Lord. But what is it that he's saving us from? And almost instantly, all of you are thinking this. Well, he saves us from our, say it, sins, right? And I want you to know that is absolutely correct. But that's only part of it. He saves us from everything that he has just explained, just like we saw last week in Ephesians chapter 2. He saved us from death, from transgressions, from sin, from bondage to spiritual powers and sensual gratification. He has saved us from the wrath of God. Take a look at everything you and I are saved by grace from. So chapter 2, verse 1, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. This is life apart from Christ. If, you wanna, if you're here today and you're really truly trusting in Jesus, this is life apart from Christ. You were dead. See that? Chapter 2, verse 1, in your trespasses and sins. Notice this, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit is now working in the sons of disobedient. You were dominated by the world and Satan. And furthermore, you were disobedient to the will of God. And to make matters worse, you were driven by your self-centered desires. I mean, this was my life apart from Christ, dominated by Satan, totally enamored by the things of the world, and driven by the flesh. Notice what it looks like, verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. These are the bodily desires, greed, lust, whatever you want, gluttony, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, taking place right here, right? And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were destined for wrath. What has the supreme sovereign Lord saved us from? All of this. Can you believe it? There is no better or greater news than to realize the greatness of salvation by grace. But friends, for this to be your reality, you must receive Christ by grace through faith, just like the text says. I mean, consider like this. Consider penicillin, okay? So penicillin is the first true antibiotic. It was recognized and discovered by Alexander Fleming, the professor of bacteriology at St. Mary's Hospital in 1928. It's actually a rather fascinating story of how he actually discovered penicillin. He did so coming back from a vacation. It was almost by happenstance that he came upon it. But I want you to know that penicillin has been used to save the lives of millions of people. Uh, who have had some form of blood poisoning, but by having penicillin, their lives were saved. Just after first service, I had a lady say, I am alive because of penicillin. She was a, a, one of the first recipients in Columbus, Texas, and it saved her life. So it's one thing, though, to, to actually accept the fact that penicillin exists. Do, would you all say that penicillin exists? Okay, very good. Do you believe that it would have the ability to help bring healing 
if you had some sort of blood uh, infection or blood disease? Do you, do you believe that? And you're like, yeah. I mean, it, it can help. In order for penicillin, though, to really benefit you, you must actually receive it, right? If you know about it and believe that it, it, this really could help me, but you don't receive it, it is of no real benefit to you, right? And the same is true about Christ. You can know that Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died, uh, paid for our sins, and was resurrected from the dead three days later. You can believe that Jesus Christ really can forgive sins. He can change lives. But you must personally accept him, receive him, trust him actively by faith. Otherwise, you have knowledge that will not benefit you. And I wouldn't want that to happen to anyone, to be fully aware, but never truly trusting in Christ. And friends, this is the gospel of the kingdom of God, that God saves us by grace through faith in Christ. But notice this. God not only saves us by grace through faith in Christ, but he shapes us by grace to become a masterpiece in Christ. Look at the gospel of the kingdom. After extolling the greatness of grace and accepting Christ by faith, look what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, we are becoming the masterpiece of God, both individually and collectively as the church. And the reason this happens is because we are a new creature in Christ. Do you see that in verse 10? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. This is what the Bible presents as the fact that when you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ, by virtue of the fact that we are united with him, the resurrected one, we are a new creature. Like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is, in, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. What is new about you? If you're a Christian, what is new about you is that you've been united with Christ. Christ literally dwells in your hearts by faith. He has placed his Holy Spirit in your life. You are sealed with him, in him, with the Holy Spirit. You are marked out as one of his, and he literally has taken up residency in your life. You are a new creation. And as a new creation, God is doing a new thing in you. That new thing is what? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And these good works were prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. Just like our salvation. We saw from Ephesians chapter 1 that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God is working out salvation even before the foundation of the world. So it is with the good works that believers actually do as a way of life. They are been prepared beforehand. This is God's sovereign plan that we who are saved by grace are shaped by grace and we manifest good works. So like John chapter 15, verse 8, remember what Jesus said? He said this, my father is glorified by this. Well, what is that? By this, he says that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my 
disciples. My father's glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Do the good works, do they bring about salvation? No. The good works, the fruit, is a result of the root that is found in relationship with Christ. And so genuine believers manifest the life of Christ, and they do so by expressing good works that God prepared beforehand that you and I would live in them. And so it's like the Reformer said, you know, faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone, right? That's actually what James said. Remember? Remember when James is giving that argument in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26? He says, faith without works is, anybody know? Dead. Faith without works is dead. Are we saved by works? Absolutely not. Do works come from a faith that is alive? Absolutely yes. And notice what he says. We are his workmanship. You see that in verse 10? The word could be translated handiwork. It's the Greek word poema. It's where etymologically we get our word poem from. It means something that was made some, by someone. It could even be translated masterpiece. We have been created by God. We are his masterpiece. And when you consider artwork, oftentimes you find just artwork kind of like lining the halls and you got these statues over here and they're things to look at. The masterpiece that God is creating through his people are not just works to be looked at. They are living masterpieces. We are art in motion. It is the masterpiece of God that is moving through the lives of his people, being expressed in millions of different ways, from the smallest acts of kindness to a smile and a handshake to some of the greatest acts of sacrifice and generosity and giving of oneself. All of these are good works that speak of the master. And so good works reveal God's character. So to give you just a, just a simple definition of a good work, it is a divinely prescribed action that benefits others and is done for the glory of God. It is actions taken in God's strength to accomplish God's work to do so for God's glory. And this has always been the plan, the kingdom gospel of Jesus. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, right? So Jesus is the light of the world. We are united with him. The light of Christ shines through his people in such a way that we do actively do good works and we glorify God. Some people get the idea like, well, good works is just another way for me to gain more attention for myself, right? People like that I do good things because I like all the attention that comes to me. That would be the wrong motive. The motive of why you and I are actively engaged on a regular basis of doing good work is because we want God to be glorified, not us. And notice we are to walk in them. You see that in verse 10? Before you and I had placed our faith in Christ, how did we once live? 
Well, remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2? Let me tell you how you and I walked. Verse 2, verse 1 in chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. That was your former manner of life, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The word walk is the Greek word peripateo. It's that's forward motion. It's just one step in front of another. Before you and I were in Christ, we walked in the ways of this world. Some were more wicked than others, but all of us were doing life apart from Christ. But now that we have placed our trust and faith in Christ... How are we walking? We are disciples of Jesus. We are following him and he's doing his work in us. We are walking in the good works that God has prepared beforehand. You see, good works demonstrate, demonstrates God's story in the lives of his people. God is put on display through the millions and millions of good works that he is doing through his people. And you see, we have a new allegiance. We have a new aspirations. We have a new alignment because Christ now is our cornerstone, like we're going to see in the upcoming weeks, like chapter 2, verse 20. Christ is the cornerstone. We have a new association. We're part of the body of Christ. Everything's new. And our lives formerly walked in the ways of this world. That's all we knew. But no longer. We know Christ, and we're walking in the ways of Christ and in the good works that he's prepared before, for us. So let me give you a simple definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news, and that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. It's the good news that by grace, God forgives and redeems all who are broken over their sin, who believe in the perfect life, substitutionary death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and receive eternal life as a disciple in his kingdom. We are trusting in Christ. We receive Christ by faith and we follow him as a way of life. And we're walking in this new way of life that expresses good works as we go through each day. So what I would like to do is challenge each one of us to move forward in life with a masterpiece mindset. I'd like you to rethink how you are approaching your life. And I want to challenge you, go forward in life with a masterpiece mindset. And it comes by asking God these three questions. First of all, asking this question, God, would you do your work in and through me? It must start with the heart. A mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. God, would you do your work in me? Help me to know you, to know your love, to experience it, to rest in you, to rejoice in you. And then, God, would you allow me to express your love, your kindness, your grace in the, with the people in my lives? Kindness, words of encouragement, serving, helping one another, teaching, training, discipling, caring for the needs of others, giving generously, sacrificially, sharing, caring. There are myriads of ways that we can actively serve Christ by just manifesting good works that come from our relationship with him. Let me give you a second question for a mindset of being a living masterpiece, and that is doing this. God, help me to see how you're doing your work through others. God is not just 
at work in you. He's at work in all of his people. And one of the most helpful things that you can do is look to recognize and see how is God at work in this person? And I'll tell you, if you really want to have a ministry to others, why don't you tell them how you see God at work in them? Hey, I just want you to know, I really thank you for how you're serving Christ. Like, you're working with my kids right now in this hour that gave me that privilege of worshiping. Or how I see joy or your service or your care or how you take your teaching ministry so seriously or how you make all these investments or just the gracious way you handle yourself and others. I want you to know this is the work of God and others. Instead of like measuring people up like, oh man, that is such a sorry excuse for a Christian here. I just can't believe it. Like, no, no, no. Recognize they are masterpieces in the making and they are God's masterpiece that you're mocking. Recognize how he's at work in others. And let me give you the third question. God, would you use us in your work through the church? So often we read texts like this with an individualistic mindset, like, oh, this is just all about me. We're just programmed to always think about ourselves, right? It's the old way of life. But the book of Ephesians tells us this really isn't just about you. This is about us. It is about us in community, Believers in Christ, you cannot actually fulfill all the good works that God has prepared hand, beforehand by living in isolation. It's done in the context of community, in the challenges and the difficulties and the, and the friction that exists. It's not always just easy, and it's frankly not just about you. It's about what God is doing in the lives of his people. And as we're going to see as you go through the book of Ephesians, it's all about what God is doing in us. So when you think about it, like, God, how are you working in the church, all of us, whether it be like through Stephen Ministry or Isaiah House or OCC, Operation Christmas Child, or the STARS Reading Program or FX Camp or the Mission Trip or in Gracious Giving or the ministries of our church. God, how are you working in us? How can I be involved in this work? You see, we reflect the character of Christ by engaging actively in good works. It's a way of life. In the millions and millions of small ways to even the most significant ways, we're demonstrating Christ is alive and he's moving through me and you and us together. You know, the beauty of the artwork testifies to the skill of the artist, right? You ever been in an art museum and you like look at some amazing pieces of art and you're like, wow, that artist has amazing gift, right? I want you to know the masterpiece that God is creating in his people individually and together, it's his masterpiece. And when we are growing in functioning as he's intended, both individually and together, it speaks of the great skill and the gifts of the master himself. And I want you to know that God is conforming us to the image of Son, of his Son so that we reflect the likeness of Jesus. That's what's happening. But you know, you're like, whoa, I'm kind of a mess. There's a lot of growth that needs to take in place in my life. It's kind of like that uh, rowdy, disruptive young kid in the Sunday school class. And this guy's just a handful. I mean, always a problem. And finally, you know, the, the teachers, you know, like, I pray for patience. And I, I just, like, I'm going to ask him, like, hey, why do you act like that? Don't you know who made you? And the little boy said, yeah, 
God made me, but he's not done with me yet, right? And friends, that's, that's us. You and I, we're like diamonds cut in the rough, man. Some of us, really rough. But I want you to know, God is at work, and he is shaping, and he's creating magnificence. That is the nature of the kingdom gospel. That's what God does. In 1463, members of the city council of Firenze, or you might know it as Florence, Italy, decided that what they really needed was a massive monument to speak of the greatness of their city. And they would go place this right in front of their city where people from all around in the community could come and see just what an amazing city Firenze or Florence, Italy is. And so they... Um, commissioned um, a pretty well-known artist at the time, a guy by the name of Agostino Di uh, Duccio, and uh, they came to an agreement of what to do. And so Agostino Di Duccio, he uh, went to um, Carrara, which wasn't too far away. They, he identified this massive piece of white marble. And uh, so he gave them the specs of what he wanted. It was going to be 19 feet when it was cut. But unfortunately, he had it cut too thin, and in the process of removing that massive piece of marble, it was dropped, and a major fracture went all the way through it. Needless to say, even though he said, oh, it's ruined, they brought it back uh, to Florence, and they laid it there. And Augustina's like, no, I'm not going to work with this. I need another piece of marble. I'm like, no way, this is extremely costly. You, you got to use this. I'm like, no, it's ruined. There's nothing. I'm not touching it. And it sat on its side for 38 years. 1501, 38 years later, the council said, you know what, we need to do something about this. This is an embarrassment to all involved. So they spoke with the son of one of the local officials, and they asked if he would complete this ambitious project using the broken slab. Unfortunately for them, the young man was Michelangelo Berarotti. Uh, you might just know him by his first name, Michelangelo. He was 26 years old, full of life, energy, skill, and imagination. And he took up the challenge. And so he locked himself behind the cathedral with this massive stone uh, piece of marble for three years, chipped away and carved at it and smoothed it over. And when he was done, it was absolutely magnificent. This 14-foot statue of David relaxing after the defeat of Goliath. They had wanted to have some sort of biblical character that was done in the classical style, but this was beyond anything that they ever imagined. They made their way. They took 49 men, 55 days, five days to move that statue, and they had to take out archways, and some of the narrow roads they had to widen, and they brought this 14-foot statue, and they placed it right in front of City Hall, and it had an effect far greater than they ever imagined. They had people not just in the community, but people from all over, all over the world, would come to see this statue. And you see, this massive fractured waste of rock became a masterpiece surpassing the art of either Greece or Rome. And friends, I tell you this, because this is what God does with his people. He takes us out. He quarries us. And here you are, this slab you're a new creature in Christ, but you look at yourself and you're like, there's, just, there's nothing here. And furthermore, you've got this great fracture in your life, right? All of us are mindful of just the great flaws and our failure and our sin. 
But I want you to know that God, the master craftsman, he knows exactly what he's doing. And he is going to craft you. And he is in the process, even this very moment, of crafting you into his masterpiece, a masterpiece of good works. And you're like, man, I look at my life and this is no artwork. I'm a mess. Remember this, God is not done with you yet. And some of you, you're just like so overwhelmed and burdened by some of the sinful things and wicked things that you've done, the hurt, the pain that you've caused, the relationship wreckage. I want you to know that if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. You don't earn God's favor. He gives it by grace. I want you to know that he'll never leave you or forsake you. And you're like, yeah, I see some growth here, but look at this. What about this? I want you to know that God isn't done with you yet. I can tell you this, like Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God's not done with you. He is still at work, and he wants you to move forward with a mindset where you are a masterpiece in the making. You're seeing it in others, and you're involved with others and seeing what God will do. Because after all, friends, It says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, the gospel of the kingdom transforms all of life by the grace of Christ. Let's pray. Lord,